series two, we are exploring the idea of scapes, landscapes, mindscapes, thoughtscapes. In particular today, we focus on the thoughtscape. And who better than Valerie Hannon to assist us in that exploration? Valerie is the co-founder of the Innovation Unit, both in the UK and in Australia. Valerie is also a founding member and co-chair of the Global Education Leaders Partnership, to scale across numerous school systems worldwide. Uh, she's a frequent contributor to the World Summit on Innovation and Education alongside many, many other conferences where she's both a keynote speaker and facilitator um, of workshops and conversations around innovation and change in our existing systems in order that we can make them function purposefully in a changing time. So today's conversation focuses very much around the thoughtscape. Hope you enjoy it. It was recorded in December 2017. I suppose the, the, as a starting question, I, I, I was thinking, you know, how do we get into this? And I, I wondered whether you could just give me a little idea of the sort of things that are interesting you at the moment. What are the things that are pushing your buttons and keeping you busy in your head um well there's the positive and the negative i think around those um the negative end is um a, a, a puzzlement a bemusement at why it is education and the issue of learning is so um shallow a theme for most people in public life in politics mm. uh, that is to say if they engage with it at all they do so at, at such a low level of um, thinking and mm. reflection that uh, it's it's been it's been puzzling me, I guess, over the last couple of years. It's particularly acute in um, the UK and the US. Um, mm. In other English-speaking countries, there are there are some signs of of, of slight slightly better um, approaches. But to illustrate what I mean, um, the discourse in public life, political life almost invariably is around the structural issues of funding, um, of relationships with unions, of um, access, particularly. Mm -hmm. um, and the heart of the matter, which is what, well, in my view, anyhow, what it is that we want our education systems to do for our planet, our societies, and for our individuals, is never debated. And moreover, it's not really interesting to people. I mean, I, I don't know what one has to do, really, to, to get it on any kind of agenda. If you look at things like, you know, where, where ideas are discussed, places like literary mm. festivals and so forth, mm. um, education hardly figures at all. Yeah. And this is, this is a strange state of affairs, given that in the past it's been of such acute interest to people at, you know, key mm. moments in, in history. Mm. Mm. So... I don't know why that should be the case, and I am therefore preoccupied by it and, and trying to get to grips with it. So that's the mm. negative side of things which are puzzling or interesting me at the moment. Mm. The the positive, I think, is that I do detect signs um, amongst young people and and in, in amongst practitioners of a more holistic view of what learning and education might be, um, a much less fragmented and um disconnected viewers you know something which 
mm. kits you for your job and um, uh, gives you a gives you a jump start in life to something mm. which is much more profound. Mm. And I think there's a lot of teachers and leaders of schools who are starting to think in those terms, or perhaps who always have and are allowing that now to come to the fore in terms of the kind of work that they do. Mm. So I guess you could say there's a sort of divergence there um, between um, a, a sort of uh, rather cliched approach to school improvement mm -hmm. and mm. something which is about creating ecosystems of learning. Mm. Mm. So there's a, there's a sort of, in, in a sense, two sides of a problem. And education as function and the, the challenges that a system faces in terms of coming to terms with what it's for. And then the formative role of education and the the ways in which it could be continually revisited over time by individuals, but also as a society. So there's sort of yes, there's, exactly. There seems to be what you're getting into is layers of of, yeah. of influence and and connection, yeah, and and that they they influence each other, but they also need to be attended to separately at times. Yes, very much so. I mean, they they have a different purview. I mean. Mm. The job of people in public life and, and in politics is, I think, in part, to um, create narratives which um, both reflect the lived experience of people in ways that they, they get, mm. but also um, shape those such that people see that lived experience as part of something bigger mm. and they mm. can make sense of it as a result. And that, that should be a primary function, which I, I believe is not being attended to. I mean, I think, you know, the, the quality of public discourse, not just around these issues, but of course I could put to point mm. to many others, mm. um, has has coarsened and um, has become grotesquely populist in ways that do not serve the public interest. Mm. And mm. I think it's acute in the case of education. And you come, you come to this with a very, very long track record of, experience in as a what I guess would be a public servant role in some senses yeah so yes. so your insights on this aren't as an observer casually looking at it you're actually embedded in the day-to-day -day realities of this at policy level and at practice level so it might be useful just to give us a little bit of that sort of background noise because I think it's very powerfully comes through in your writing and and clearly it, 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 it sets a position that you have that is almost unique, you know, to be able to play the role that you play at the moment in, your, in the work at the Innovation Unit. Um, do you mean in terms of my personal history? My yeah, biography? yeah, because it does have a major sort of influence, I think, on the ways in which you, those, those arguments have credence, you know. It, it isn't just a sort of the observer of the commentary. It, it's based around practical examples of things that have happened during a working life with politicians, with policymakers, yeah. with yeah. education practitioners. Yeah. I guess that's true. I don't reflect upon that very much. But as, as you say it, I guess it is true because I've I've never had a career plan. I've just zipped about a bit. It's all been zigzaggy. Um, but, you know, entered as most people, well, many people I know as, as a teacher. So mm. worked as a, a secondary teacher in, in London. Um, a very tough borough, which at that time still had, and this was very formative, still had grammar schools and secondary modern schools. Mm. And I was teaching mathematics, get this, in a secondary modern school, which was sort of 75% black. Mm. Um, 
with kids who utterly did not want to be there, just, you know, wanted to do something, to do something really and not, not be part of any of that. And I look back on that, I've reflected on it a very great deal and think about the kind of role that we, we played in relation to those kids. And also teaching, I think, a subject like mathematics and its utility for them and what that role that might have had in their lives later. Mm. Um, so that was the beginning. And then a zigzaggy career, which encompassed working in local government for a spell and then as a civil servant in um, an interesting area, which was equal opportunities. I was the education officer for the Equal Opportunities Commission um, just That's after right. the passing of the Sex Discrimination Act. When, if you talked about sex discrimination in education, you you got you know sort of raucous laughter or mm. just raised eyebrows. Mm. Um, it was not a subject which was thought worthy of any serious consideration, really. Mm. Mm. So some of the early attempts to nail um, the kind of discriminatory <clears throat> discriminatory processes that affected women and girls at that mm. stage was was very important to me. Um, and then back into local, no, some, some time in research necessarily, having a look at what kinds of um, systems were going on around the world and, and looking at the early stages of the school improvement movement, which is interesting, University of Sheffield. And then mm. um, back into local government and a career that ended up being director of education in Derbyshire. And I guess it was at that stage, mm. both in Sheffield and Derbyshire, with a close up and personal look at what local politicians had to do um, particularly at that stage of times of, of, of austerity. It was a first phase of Thatcher's austerity and, and the aftermath. Um, this business of how local politicians were forced to mediate what central government was seeking to do and what local communities needed and what drove them. And then through from there to working in central government, um, again in a rather unusual position, part of an innovation unit within government, but therefore working with ministers and others, looking at the, the sharp end of their dilemmas. Um, and we are talking at that stage of a, of a Labour government, um, mm. which was absolutely committed to trying to extend education opportunities to more young people and in more profound ways. David Miliband was the Minister of State at that time, and I had there an example of someone, I think, who really got what it what a, a, a politician could do to shape narratives which made sense to people and guided rather than dictated. And not not a, a prescriptive kind of approach to this kind of thing, but really shaped the enabling conditions in which people could do great work and learn from the work that was going on in great schools and great environments. It was a moment of considerable activity wasn't it across the system I mean there was an enormous amount happening from the centre yeah, yeah and, exactly yeah, exactly yeah. and you know little did we know how quickly and easily that would be lost yeah 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 and now you're in a situation at the innovation unit as a director of what's a not the within government but without government I suppose well very much so so yeah. innovation unit recognized that its place within ministry was untenable which is a long story I won't bore you with <laughs> but um the money was never going to hold out we were a kind of a funding unit a funding agency and mm. at the same time the interesting part and I think this this may be something we might explore a bit mm. at the same time there was a, a, a burgeoning field of thinking and emergent practice around social innovation 
yeah. um, methodologies, design thinking, um, design sprints, um, using ethnography, using creative techniques, um, and really a, a good deal more conceptual rigor to think about what social innovation could and, and was becoming in a whole range of of contexts, mm. none of which had been applied to education because the dominant model was all about educational research. You know, you have yeah. a practice here, there, or one is that's, that's proposed by a university. You set up a five-year evaluation program or even a two-year evaluation program, then you wait three years for results. Mm. Um, and many of us became quite critical, as I myself had worked in a university, nevertheless feeling that that was not the way to stimulate and promote innovation. Mm. Whereas the new techniques of social innovation Mm. Um, and particularly disruptive innovation, the writings of people like Clay Christensen, mm -hmm. disruptive yeah. class, yeah. Um, the emergent kind of work coming out of IDEO, um, yeah. you know, a whole range yeah. of sources, yeah. um, made us think actually what we needed was to be completely independent, if we might, within the UK and beyond it, establish a resource to people to promote um, much more disruptive, transformational innovation in education. By the way, I don't run Innovation Unit now. I'm a board director and a brilliant new generation of people manage and run and deliver its services. Mm -hmm. I merely add the odd bit of advice from time to time. <laughs> I think the word is grandee, isn't it? You know, I think that, yeah, we're all reaching it. that moment, aren't we? You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you have a grandess? Of course you can. Yeah. <laughs> Choose it. <laughs> Own it. So, so I'd like to come back to that word disruptive because I think that epitomises you. In, in, the, in the sense of my, you know, whenever I sort of refer to Valerie Hannon, the word disruptive doesn't seem to be very far away from the narrative that's going on in the conversation. Just, just let's explore that a little bit more, because I suppose in the context of education, being disruptive is actually quite problematic, because we're stuck inside of a very big... Um, almost predetermined way of thinking about how our young people are encultured into a society and our school system in a sense is for better or worse the means by which we get there and I can't remember when it was but I remember you asking a question out loud to an audience once which is more or less along the lines of do we need schools is that right am I remembering this correctly Oh, I probably yeah. did ask it at some stage, yeah. and I've had various answers to that, you know, in in the last 15 years, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it's worthwhile asking, not mm. least it's worthwhile asking, do we need schools which are statutorily mandated, that every kid has to go to on, on pain of breaking the law, yeah. unless we yeah. negotiate alternative arrangements for homeschooling, mm. Um, mm. which are rare. But I think it's worth asking. Mm. Um, however, I would want to say emphatically now, as I do in my latest book, yes, we do need schools, mm -hmm. but only if we have transformed schools. And um, I don't know why we could take this okay. conversation let, now let, let's down just, a number of paths. Do you want to stay with the whole issue of yeah, disruption for no, a few no, minutes? Let, let's hold on to that thread. I mean, because in a sense, transformation and disruption seem to need to be bed partners i mean they're, they're things yeah. which come together yeah. so let's what do you mean by that what would a transformed school look like in your well let's yeah. stay with disruption okay. first shall we? and then we'll yeah. come on to we'll the transformational to piece yeah. um and i prefer to think about transformation in relation to whole systems really mm -hmm. um it's quite curious that you 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 associate the term disruption with me because i've recently been asked i am going to go to this year well 2018's 
ICSI, International Congress of School <laughs> Effectiveness and Improvement, mm -hmm. not to keynote or anything, but to take part in a debate. And they've asked me to take part in a debate and lead the motion or lead the um, uh, supporting the motion, which says that to be successful, innova innovation in education has to be disruptive. Mm -hmm. And clearly they have put that up as a motion um, reflecting the kinds of considerations that you've set out at the beginning of this part of our conversation. Mm. The system is huge and uh, interconnected, mm. um, so resilient. And I think part, I mean, I'm really looking forward to the debate. So as a kind of preview, let me, uh, let me rehearse yes. a couple yeah. of those arguments here, mm. which is that um, people use the term disruption to imagine things going badly wrong. Mm. If, you're, if your electricity system is disrupted, um, or, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the system of transport, say that if the train systems are disrupted, this is bad news. Mm, no mm. one wants this. Mm. You know, things need to proceed smoothly in order for, for life to remain civilised and comfortable. So the term disruption has got really negative connotations mm. to it. Mm. Unless, of course, you start to think about it in terms of the fourth industrial revolution and what is happening all around us. Mm. And I sometimes think that a really good... Um, analogy or example just to reflect upon is that of, of, of transport actually um, and you know you think about the history I mean, it's the perfect illustration of the s-curve the way in which a particular service say transport and communication um, has a certain model a certain paradigm you know the horse and cart and then we think about how that improves and improves and then it becomes such that it's at the, at the top of its game or, or coach and horses mm -hmm. and then the internal combustion engine is invented which at the time is nowhere near as good as a horse and cart because it hasn't mm. got the infrastructure mm. it's an outlier but whilst the original service remains paramount and everybody's expectation that it will last forever somewhere else in the forest an innovation which completely disrupts that style is being improved and improved and improved until it takes over. And you have these various waves. So it goes from the internal combustion petrol engine um, to the hybrid, to the electrical. And then you start to get even more disruptive forms, which is um, driverless cars, where we could never think about transporting ourselves without imagining that we do it ourselves, that we drive. <laughs> and now, of course, we're looking at an utterly different paradigm, which will totally disrupt mm. not just personal transport, but also logistics and the mm. way in which you know, convoys of driverless lorries will take our globalised goods around the country and beyond. And then there's a further disruption which is on its way, which is if you say, look no hands, surely it will be look no owner. Because the notion of owning your own little piece of transport will become absurd and you will think back to that with a kind of a wry amusement um, as we move on to the next form. So I think that disruption is a negatively connoted word and ought not to be. And, and the second thing I want to say about it, particularly influenced by the work of Clay Christensen, is that disruption and therefore through it, fantastic breakthroughs in terms of efficacy and reach and extension of services mm. happens when people start to attend to the non-users of services. This is critical mm. to the theory, really, mm. that people start to say, you know what, there are people, 
I mean, take take the personal computer. This is this is Clay Christensen's major space of looking at how disruption in markets occurs. You take the personal computer, and all of that history shows that for ages people thought only big corporations could have co- could have computers, or only people with degrees in computer science could use them. And people then started to attend to the non-users. And, you know, things like the Apple Mac derive from thinking about, could you could you put something together that even a kid could play with almost like a toy? Mm. Mm. Um, and attending to the non-user or the underserved user is critical. And then the third thing I want to say about disruption is that, honestly, it depends on the scale of your ambition. If you think that the school system currently in terms of its ambitions, um, is doing the job we as society needs, then um, we aren't talking the same language because as far as I'm concerned, education is fundamentally failing and is actually designed to fail Mm -hmm. large proportions of society. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it is clear, you know, that the the major task is to get 40, maybe 50, in some countries even 60, 70% to university and the rest, well, Good luck. Yeah, then that's just not going to hold for in the in the context of what we're talking about in terms of the radical changes going on now. Precisely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, leaving aside the multiple forms of discrimination, if you've got any form of special needs that really, you know, you, you, you're pretty much written off, not as disgustingly as you were 30 years ago, mm. um, but, you know, the idea that one can genuinely personalise learning so that everybody, everybody experiences success as a learner and discovers their particular blend and um, mix of skills, competencies and excellence, as Todd Rose shows in his books, The End of Average. I think that book is a real broadside to the kind of parameters of what education has been trying to do. Well, if you you set different kinds of ambitions... You will end up with, yeah. You cannot think that the current system must do anything other than disrupt some of the key expectations and key contours of what the system looks like mm. and transform itself. Mm. So mm. that's that's what I mean by mm. why disruption and transformation are, have to be in our sights and not simply improving the existing system. Mm. I love that idea, you know, the negative connotation actually defines a a, a possible reason why people have not engaged, embraced it across the education system. Interestingly, well, it's just, it's though, when you think, if you think of learning in, in terms of what happens in the brain when we are actively learning, we're, at, we're absolutely in a process of disruption. We've been challenged at every moment to reframe everything. Hmm. And, and that dissonance is the means by which we, we progress, I suppose. We, we, we begin to understand something in a more complete way because we're, our previous world vision is worldview is broken and well exactly paul and i mean it's, it's well documented think mm. about thomas kuhn and the, uh, the um history of scientific revolutions yeah. he's got it all there yeah. it's all there yeah. Yeah. you know but if you want paradigm shift mm. um that's and and that deep as you're pr- precisely putting it there that different form level of understanding altogether mm. um then we know the stages that paradigm shifts go through and um, for whatever reasons, physicists can handle it. <laughs> People working in the transport system can handle it. 
people working in the digital world can handle it. But educators, I think, are prepared to now. It's just that those who are kind of only semi-interested in <laughs> education as, a, as an overall enterprise are not engaging with this. Well, I suppose those that want education simply to serve as the apprenticeship for adulthood are, are more concerned with the structures and systems and are not interested in that part of the discourse. If that isn't part of the framing discourse, it doesn't get attended to. You know, it, yeah. it, it, people are prioritising the things that they're being measured on all the time. And unfortunately, that's where education has ended up, isn't it? It's, it's geared by this over-prescriptive and over-determined view of what should or, or ought to happen. And actually what could happen never comes into, into the frame in, in terms of the possibilities of what a group of people sitting together in a room might want to create or might want to invent or might want to simply do on the basis of their relationships together and the places they're operating out of so yeah there's a there's a very different type of education that seems to be on the horizon of what you're then describing and i suppose that then raises the big question about transformation does a system have the capacity or the capability to transform to that or is it simply going to happen by uh, by almost natural evolution that this is the next the next ecological frame that we function under because human beings might not be able to manage themselves into that new system but they might find themselves in it simply because circumstances outside of their control suddenly push them towards having to think very differently about what the service of those systems are for them and i'm thinking particularly if you like if you're looking at disruption and education around the ecological paradigm and the, the things that are, in a sense, beyond human, which are increasingly showing signs of massive stress. And those yeah. things are, in effect, our life support system. So if we don't attend to those things, we're in serious trouble. But we might find ourselves in serious trouble before we attend to them, which then in turn means that we start to think about the learning implications around those things. It's, a, it's one of those awful catch-22s. You know, the system doesn't know it's a system until it needs to know it's a system. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you've you nailed it. I'm not sure I can add much more to that other than say it terrifies me. And you've, you know, mm. what does one need to do to draw attention to the urgency of all of this, mm. Um, mm. both for individuals and beyond? And as you say, is it possible for education to make these shifts fast enough in order to prepare ourselves? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what kind of shocks to the systems it will take. I mean, what, what gives me comfort or rather gives me some hope is in looking around the world at the number. Um, I mean, you know, in, in, in overall terms, of course, tiny, but still on every continent, in every country, there are counterexamples of yeah. people doing this work. And I yeah. do sense that they are growing and that they are getting more assertive. And I think we have to shine. I mean, I think the responsibility of people like you and me, if we can do nothing else before we shuffle off to our end, is to shine a bright spotlight on them, give them mm. oxygen, give them support, um, mm. show to people that when you do this kind of work with young people and children and, and younger adults, they things don't go to hell. On the contrary. <laughs> yeah, they thrive. They go to heaven. <laughs> yeah, to, to use to come. use what you're saying in your book, you know, that those are the, way, the creating those conditions enable people to thrive. 
and we yes. we have to trust that space and in a sense it's letting go of the the determination of where we go and actually saying come on we, we're very creative beings and given the right circumstances we can do extraordinary things the the, the massive frustration i have and i think we've shared over the years really is that is the isolation of those communities of practice, in a sense, in the, in the in the big, the big picture? You know, they're all edge riders, and yeah. and we know what how exhausting that is to be that on that edge continually. Um, yeah, that's the bit that I think is the where I really struggle with with how we move this from what we currently understand and can, can quite powerfully critique to, to take the practical possibilities of what we're trying to do on the ground into the mainstream is such a, almost an insurmountable burden to do that, that it suggests that perhaps we don't do it that way anymore. We actually go a different route. What might the different route be in your view? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm coming into what you're saying about the, you know, in a sense where the innovation unit made that transition to an independent organisation. I'm wondering whether the the idea of a, a network that's global rather than nation state based around education is the first thing. So we have to look towards ambition at the global level, what it is to, to be a global citizen or an earth citizen at this point, and then what type of education might earth citizens need. And what type of structures and systems might support those Earth citizens in connecting and pursuing things which are valuable to themselves, but also to the ecosphere that they function in? And well, so, I entirely agree with that. You know, and that's what we're trying to make happen as well. So mm. um, you've mentioned Innovation Unit a number of times. And as I've said, you know, I serve as a board member and I, I try to assist. But actually, the bulk of my work now is genuinely working with with people globally on this so mm. a number of organizations one's global education leaders partnership gelp mm -hmm. um people don't know that if you just google gelp online you'll mm. find out about that as oh. a um uh, an entity as a I'll put 10 it, years old now i'll put it on the links yeah for the program yeah yeah right exactly yeah. <clears throat> um doing exactly what you're saying and asking those questions mm. about us as global citizens and evolving the whole concept of global competency which i have to say i'm delighted to note um oecd pisa have mm. now been doing a, a huge amount of rigorous work around and we'll be adding to the pisa battery of tests yeah i saw uh, that and um, yeah, well, I, I, I was interested about that because was... i think that the the but firstly the fact that they are legitimating the concept and as i say have done a huge amount of rigorous work around defining it because if it's like where angels fear to tread and mm -hmm. they will be very worried that they'll get blown out of the water by mm. superficial little populists who think that it's it's mind control or some sure, crap sure um it's extremely well done, but also the system of assessing it mm. using scenarios, mm. using very creative means of, you know, if you, if you can't assess whether someone's got a, a skill yeah. or a competency, then what on earth do you think you're talking about? And how mm. do you know if you've got any progression? Mm. So I think mm. assessment is a very important part of this. And I've done some great work on it. Anyway, I digress. But my point is that whilst five years ago, you hardly got any traction around the notion of global competency, um, increasingly, 
there are now, not just in research institutions, but places like OECD, people both legitimating that concept and encouraging um, national systems, state jurisdictions, to think about how that becomes incorporated. So that's one shift. But I'm just, I suppose, trying to agree um, energetically with your, 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 your proposal that this has to be a global process now. And um, I, I see some signs of that, and that's where I'm giving my my energy. And there's one other emergent entity, which is the Global Change Leaders, which people like okay. Ashoka yeah. have started yeah. to put together. Um, you know, I, I, it's very early days yet. I can't say where that's going, but I do think that that insight you had mm. about insisting on the global relevance of this and learning amongst ourselves, the, 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 a kind of diminution of the loneliness in part, mm. Mm. Um, in part an enrichment of the whole process, because when you look at it in very different cultures, I mean, I'm speaking at a conference, working with some people in Bangalore in mm. January, mm. Um, whose work around the um, promotion and the support of empathy in schools is, I think, exemplary and really mm. useful to the world. I touch mm. on it in my book. Mm. Um and uh, I think that in a context like India, where there are huge problems around education and, you know, the assumption has always been that they've just got to copy what the West has done and get a yeah. bit faster about that and, you know... Yeah, sort of post-colonial Post-colonial yeah. imitation. Yeah. yeah. Increasingly, people are recognising that they, that can't be the past. Mm. It's mm. got to be this new blend, this emergent blend... Um, a disruptive blend of, firstly, the powerful technology, mm. which wipes away many of the old expectations about what education needs to be. So this is not like a, yeah. you know, a retro back to the 40s kind of idea. Mm. We'll use this technology and all its power in every way that we can and get it into the hands of learners, mm. allied with a culturally highly specific sensitivity to what Eastern philosophies and mm. the spiritual dimension mm. of places like India in, mm. in all its divergent diversity can offer. Mm. So that's what those educators are doing. Mm. And I think that that kind of work will be hugely inspirational to mm. people in very, very different kinds of contexts. But they will they will make the transitions, they will make the, the shifts that think about the relevance for them and how it could be transposed. It's very much what we've been trying to do with Naturally Smart Places, is this idea of understanding one's own context in terms of dimensions that are not necessarily the ones that are the normal metrics of an organisation or a place's performance. So you, you immediately bring together the human aspects of what a place services people's needs for but alongside that a very careful and thoughtful attention to the the natural dynamics of an environment and those two things in in consort then start to create the imaginative space to say what exactly could this become and at that point perspectives that are not western start to become very important i think in breaking away from the the old paradigm, the industrial paradigm that, that I think is still so dominant in our education system. And, and, and the, so you hold that as one piece, almost a, a notion that there is a, 
an historic indigenous knowledge of place that's community driven that is still possible to tap into. And then at the same time, you have the massive innovation of technology coming to that as well to give people much more freedom to connect. And that will increasingly become cheaper and cheaper. You can't avoid that. So the, the universal offer is, is greater, but it doesn't mean it becomes universally standard. And that's what I think is really fascinating about the moment that we're in, in the sense that the, the old systems are crumbling. The opportunity to leap to something really huge and dynamic is there with the technology. But we haven't necessarily yet plugged into the idea of what nature can help us do with place to understand how we function ourselves in our own systems. Because we've missed it. We've, we've ignored it for so long. And I think the revi revisiting of that is actually going to help that leap to happen. I think. Well, I, I hope you're right. I very much hope you're right because the danger at this particular transition point is that we don't in, we don't manage that fusion that you're talking about oh, there, yeah. but I, rather the technology kind of triumphs. Yeah. And my my and nightmare it's really not enough. is yeah. of a system in which kids are kind of you know so-called personalised learning is there, Norman, they're glued to their screens mm, mm, um, mm. in a kind of an individual track with governed by a bunch of algorithms, mm. uh, which, by the way, have all kinds of biases built into them, mm. um, which uh, purports to know about their, their choices, their next steps, and has them on channels of learning, mm. um, which I, I think are profoundly uh, dispiriting and constraining. Yeah. I'm thinking of it more along the lines of... Do you know what, 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 do you know what, what I mean about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I think, absolutely. I think that's a, that's the dystopic nightmare in a sense, isn't it? it, it I think, and, and only too real one, only too real. I mean, it's... Yeah. No, I'm thinking more along the lines of the fact that there's already research going on, for example, and I'm hoping to chat to this woman in a few weeks' time, and looking at the links between human electrical impulse of the brain and mycelial impulse and looking at how those things can start to connect. So we begin to actually have a, a conversation with nature in a way that we've never had before, simply because our technology will allow us to be able to connect in way beyond our human sensory frame. And that that... that that at the moment is very, very out there research, but it's fascinating because I think what it's doing is breaking away from this idea that there's us and nature. And actually it's starting yeah. to bring us back into this thought, exactly. well, how on earth do we progress across this century, given what we know is coming in terms of ice melt and all these other things, and look at it as an opportunity to learn and innovate rather than do all the restrictive things that we're more than likely to do given our current ways of doing things. So in a sense, it's the it's coming back to what you said at the beginning. We could progress with our education system in, 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 the, in the next decade or two and just continue to try and optimise the old, the old model. But we know damn well that isn't going to work. So how do we make put it on a profound level and then reinvent what we mean by progression, what we mean by progress what it you know coming to your book what it, we reinvent schools how do we how do we create an environment where everybody thrives and everything fr thrives as a result of it whether it's human or otherwise yeah. and it's it's visualizing and then embedding that into our places seems to me to be absolutely essential and letting people play with it creatively from place to place um which 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 poses some problems, I think, because our 
governments like to tinker and mess about with schools. And so it, it comes back to this question that I'm puzzling with, you know, do we really still need them? Do, do they actually serve the purpose that humanity needs at this point? Or do we Are have you talking to... about schools at this stage? Or schools, schools. Oh, schools. Oh, well, let me come into that, mm. because earlier, you know, I, I, you remarked I, I've posed the question from time to time, oh. and I, <clears throat> I do now think that we do, but only if they're transformed. And I say that because I come back to the dystopian nightmare as well, mm. the, the kid with its screen and, you know, off you go. And I just increasingly am of the view that schools are one of those institutions. And, well, I'm, I'm with Weber on this. We need institutions. We do. We, mm. we, we, we eliminate them at our peril. And some of the things <clears throat> that um, new tech, the techno technology revolution has done, has been to question the role of institutions, question mm. the role of regulation, for example. Mm. Mm. And then you find out a bit too late that, oh, actually, it did have a really good use. Mm. In the case of schools, it seems to me, they're one of the few last places where kids can meet kids from very different kinds of backgrounds, notwithstanding the stratification that schools often, often mm. have, mm. Um, that forces them to relate beyond the family, beyond the immediate group, that puts them into contact face-to-face -face and physically mm. with people from very, very different kinds of histories and backgrounds and um, worldviews, um, e even where, you know, it's very monocultural. There's a, at least an extension beyond the immediate family. And the space, therefore, to think about some of the issues that that community in which you're embedded face, because I think you and I both agree that school, I think you put it earlier, is not just being about an apprenticeship for a future life. School mm. is your life when mm. you're young. Mm. It is Absolutely. today. It is yeah. the only thing that's real. It's today. And to disconnect that to the issues that face your community, whatever they might be, is almost a form of abuse, I think. Mm. I, I honestly think mm. that it's it's imperative that kids feel that they're part of all of that, part of that community life. And a school is a way for that to take shape if it's transformed, if it becomes part of an ecosystem of learning which calls upon all the other players in that community, whether they're businesses or civic society or you know the health system, whatever it happens to be, mm. that's it's a farming community, that all of those dimensions become part of a learning process, the spaces for learning, the providers of learning, the reflectors on learning, the people who assess the learning that goes on. Mm. If you have that ecosystem, then the school becomes a kind of a hub or a nexus, part of a nexus anyway, part of an ecosystem. I prefer ecosystem rather than being at the hub because it might not be school-centric. Yeah. You know, schools, yeah. might, schools might choreograph learning in very different ways um, but I mean a lot of the pathfinders I talk about in, in my work have their kids out on internships between two and three days a week and mm. they come back to school as a kind of base camp mm, mm, mm. but so, the school can collect on choreograph or can curate cura the collaboration that kids need to learn as well we all recognize now that collaboration is a real skill it's mm. not some soft kind of wishy-washy mm. stuff and it can be taught and it can be learned and a school redefined as i've suggested is a fantastic place for that to happen so that's my defense of schools as they might be not as they are <laughs> and i think we just chuck that concept out with 
um, well, we should do it with with great care. I, I just don't, mm, you know, mm. don't, I don't believe that's the route we should take. We should put our energies into really, as I said before, giving greater support, all power to the elbow of all the practitioners and on every continent who are trying to recreate their institutions in that kind of way. Yeah. And also, at the same time, work with people who are perhaps the new generation of people going into public life who haven't yet got a new narrative or perhaps sort of glimpse it but are afraid to express it publicly for fear of ridicule. Give them the ammunition that they need to create a different kind of narrative, story, meaning-making around what education is becoming in certain privileged spaces and might become for everybody so that people can look to something better. Yeah. But without that, it just... I mean, we're we're talking about what will drive change. Mm. There are people who think it won't be governments at all. It'll be irrelevant. And what will drive change is the markets. It'll mm. be the edutechs, the big tech companies. They will drive it. And that that just makes my blood run cold mm. because mm. I happen to believe that there should be some democratic mandate for all this and that just leaving it to the market is a dangerous route. You see, I have a different perspective on that, I guess, because I don't think it will end up being a human driven change across the century i think i think the natural systems will drive the changes that are going to be the profound changes humanity faces across this next 30 40 50 years because of the consequences of industrialization and whether or not we are sufficiently equipped to respond to the the living environment is our sort of major challenge, I suppose. To, I, I, I could, look, look, I couldn't agree more with it, that being the major driver. We're mm, entirely mm, at one on that. Mm, mm. The question is, how does the response come how about? How do we deal with it? Yeah. And yeah. the response might come about by governments or, you know, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Getting, getting, getting a grip and seeing yeah. that yeah. there is a different response to be yeah. formed. Or it can be left to the markets in yeah. the way that I've suggested. Um, which I, I think is a dangerous route that, that education might take. Or as you say in your book, I mean, we, we invest our energies into cooperative and collaborative actions. And I mean, the, the, if, if, if we, there was one thing that came out of the, um, what was that movement? The, what, the, oh, goodness. Oh, outside St. Paul's in London, they always have the tents there. The Occupy movement. Occupy, yeah. One of the things out of Occupy that I thought was really fascinating was this uh, this notion of the community of everything and the, the, the idea of self-reliance, open source driven reforms, of the ability to, to transcend the existing market model and get to a point where the, where the connections could be created and that there was a common value in sharing knowledge and supporting each other's solutions through distance as well as locally. So you, you create, it, it spawned a, a million tiny little groups, often very young kids really, you know, in their early 20s and 30s, who were technically very capable of, of of doing practical things and also interested in in exploring what they could do in their own setting but sharing that without without any particular preconception of whether it had a market value you know they were interested in simply to put it out there and see what others could do with it so you ended up with really interesting solutions to problems such as in the technical side of things with coders working on things like github where 
and ideas put into the network and it's shared so that others can innovate from it and it continually then loops back into the network so everybody gets the benefit of everybody's innovation so, so the, the, the architecture of mind that enables the solutions to come is way more than the individual. And I think those sorts of models are ones which education could very usefully pick up on now and use. Because the system as it stands is still tiny pockets rather than collaborative endeavour. Yeah. And you, you and I have both experimented with the idea of trying to nudge organizations like schools into collaborative ventures and sometimes it works often it doesn't because they default back to the old system when the technology drives certain solution mechanisms that are not based around um having to spend time thinking about sharing it they automatically default to it then then we're in a different place that's that's sort of what we've been experimenting with recently. You know, we've been looking at how to do that with Naturally Smart because it seems to me that if you can create a solution where you're really focused on your own place, you're trying to work out how to how to enrich that place in, 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 in as many ways as possible for, to optimise the life experiences of those in it. And at the same time, those solutions get posted and are available to anybody else who wants to use them, then perhaps the the narrative can begin to be shared on a wider platform. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's just it's a sort well, of no, I mean, thought experiment. I, I, I think I share that theory of change. Mm. I mean, you, that's what you, your experience does to you, doesn't it? It, mm. it? it nudges you towards formulating a theory of change, and that's where you put your energies mm. to the best of your ability. Mm. I share that, mm. and I would just point out that... Um, you, you remarked about schools defaulting. Mm. And mm. why do they default? They default because they're locked into systems, the, the leaders of which continue to press um, a, you know, a retro, out-of-date, inadequate and highly prescriptive system. Yeah. And so we yeah. just can't ignore the role of leadership and politics in all of this. Mm. We mm. just can't ignore it. And mm. much, you know, I'm sort of tired of people saying, oh, it's all at the grassroots and that's <laughs> where you, got all, you put all your energies. And you mm. see too many people, oh, the Occupy movement's a good example, really. Yeah. You see too many people just burn out and things come to nothing mm. because the enabling conditions or the disabling conditions of the system drive out the possibility of, you know, system change as opposed to beautiful exceptions. Yeah, yeah. So... I, I'm just making a plea, I guess, not not in uh, in contrast to what you're saying, but it's both ands, not either or. Yeah, yeah. That we can't ignore the politics. We've got to nurture and attend to formulating a narrative and a decent enough evidence base that gives confidence to people in public life who know, who get it. You know, they're, mm, they're not mm. all <laughs> completely self-serving idiots, and some <laughs> do clock this. Mm, mm. Um, but I believe, and it's a theory, that they continue to be, you know, especially the younger ones coming through now, less than confident that an alternative narrative will fly and that they won't be ridiculed for it and that, yeah. you know, they yeah. they need to be shored up, really, by, yeah. as I've said, evidence, 
um, of what can happen in real institutions here and now in various parts of the world, but also what lies ahead in terms of what we understand about the forces that you've been alluding to. So, so are there, I mean, I'm moving us towards the sort of a conclusion of our conversation because I'm conscious you've got to catch a train. I can carry on all day, but just just give me some pointers then in terms of the future for you. Where where are you going with this now in the next? Six months, year. Where's Where's 2018 going to take you? Oh, if only I knew. Well, <laughs> I brought out the, um, the book in mm-hmm. 2017, and I guess therefore that for me, 2018 is trying to find as many opportunities as I can to to debate the ideas and to you know. Um, One of which will for... be at Millmont. I hasten to add. Sorry, say again. One of which will be at Millmont. Oh, well, I'd be delighted. I'd be delighted yeah, to do that. We but I'm do that. really pretty much <laughs> pimping myself out and say, you know, I'll come to any bloody conference um, <laughs> to try to um, get more of these ideas debated and more people on board. Um, and in particular, I'm looking for ways in which. Um, and this is not some kind of elitist view, but it comes mm. back to what I was saying about politics and leadership, mm. um, trying to find ways to have serious dialogues um, with people who are leaders in, in public life to enable them to think, think it through in a, in a safe space you know, where yeah. they won't feel exposed yeah. and, uh, and at risk. So that's my agenda. Um, and uh, I've got energy for it, just looking for the opportunities. And you'll be bringing your young grandchild into the world as well. Well, isn't that poignant? Yes, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> so, hell of a good year ahead, then. I'm looking forward oh, to meeting up I can't, with you. I, I count on nothing. Expect little and, and hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> Valerie, thank you so much for that. I mean, it's a, we've covered an enormous mountain of material there in that hour and a, hour and a quarter or whatever. Um, and... I'm sure our listeners will delight in just the opportunity to tune in and hear it for, and think about what we're talking about and come well, back to us. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Yeah. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. I think it's a, a creative one. And um, maybe I'll get the opportunity to talk with some of your listeners too because I'd, I'd love to be able to do that in, in, in you know, other sorts of circumstances. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. What a lovely way to end 2017. Thank you so much to Valerie Hannon for taking part in this conversation. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to hear more, the series is on iTunes. And you can also hear it on the School of Sustainability website. Thank you to Andrew and the Boats for the music. If you want to contact us by email, then send a message to me, paul at foundation.rocks. This is a Foundation Press production 2017.